Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Good to have you here with us today. I am excited for you to uh, go behind the scenes on today's episode as we're going to chat with Molly Fletcher about how she got into speaking, what her business looks like today, and then also how to thrive in relationship-based businesses such as speaking. Now, Molly's background is actually in sports management. If you remember uh, the movie Jerry Maguire, like that was her world. She's going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, and she did that for a long time. After giving so much of her knowledge, her expertise while working, she opted to lean into what was most most fulfilling to her, what she was super passionate about, which was speaking. And this episode is actually one of my favorites because Molly's not only going to share how she transitioned from being a sports agent to becoming a full-time speaker, and also how she's grown her speaking business ever since then. Molly's business has grown into uh, primarily like word of mouth referrals. And as she likes to say, like the more you speak, the more you speak. So we're going to talk about that today. I'll talk about how to grow your speaking business through intentional networking, creating memorable experiences for your audiences. So uh, let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Molly Fletcher. Enjoy. All right. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Good to have you here with us today. Today, uh, I'm super excited for this conversation. I'm going to be chatting with Molly Fletcher, who is a uh, super successful speaker. And so we're going to kind of peek behind the curtain as much as she'll allow us to and see kind of uh, what is working for her and how she has got to this point in her business. So uh, Molly, first of all, thanks for uh, joining us today. Of course, Grant. It's fun to be with you. Uh, all right. For context, why don't you give us a little snapshot uh, in your business today? How much speaking are you doing? Who are you speaking to? What are you speaking about? Like, give us the, the snapshot of what your, your speaking business looks like. So uh, I speak probably anywhere between 70 and 80 keynotes a year, a lot of kicking off conferences, closing conferences, leadership events, all company meetings and SKO sales conferences. Um, and then I would say probably 20% of my audiences are all women audiences, all women events, um, which are, you know, super fun too. So super grateful. Love it. Love it all. Yeah. And in those types, is there any specific message that you typically have or like, why is it that people are, are bringing you in to speak right now? Well, Grant, I was a sports agent, Grant, for almost 20 years. So I represented professional athletes, coaches, and broadcasters. And so I spent almost 20 years right beside some of the best athletes and coaches in the world. And so I really had a front row seat to peak performance in so many ways and navigated their careers inside of a short window of time, a business that's super relational, which are most businesses, right? Um, you know, is fee-based. Um, it was about building great connections. And then of course I was a woman. And when I started in the business, there was no other women at the time that were negotiating sort of big league contracts, for example, that were representing big league guys or PGA tour players, for example. And so um, 
you know, I share stories on stage from the experiences that I had with some of the best athletes in the world, in a, in a way, most importantly, that people can lay it over top of their lives, their work, their world, so that they can do what they do just a little bit better. I, I, many of my keynotes are keynote we call Unleash Your Potential, which is really how do you shift behavior in the absence of crisis, right? So nothing's terribly wrong per se, but we want to up our game. We want to get better. And so I take them through a five-step process on how to do that. And then I share, you know, it's all stories of the guys and gals that I had the honor and the pleasure to work with and represent. And so it's fun. I mean, when, when, when somebody in the audience, you know, on a pre-call before a keynote, which we can dig into, I'll, I'll often ask, you know, are they going through change? Right. And mm-hmm. you can imagine every organization, every group is like, yes, of course we are. Tons. It's fast. How's their energy? Oh, well, they're you know right on the edge. I mean, they've been grinding it, right? So yeah. when you t- when you tell a story about a, a, a an athlete or a coach of how they navigated change or how they've managed their energy effectively or or mistakes that I've made negotiating contracts for for you know NBA and college coaches and then some of the things that worked, it's sort of a fun at some level almost sneaky way to teach. So I'm a big fan of stories but in a way that that you lay it over top of their world and they can apply it. That's what matters most right. to them, of course. And so you mentioned like today you're doing, you know, 60, 70, 80 keynotes a year, which is no small feat. That's a, that's a lot of gigs. Um, but obviously, you know, you at some point you go from zero to one. And so you mentioned for 20 years, you were a sports agent. Uh, I know that some, and in some of our own conversations, you had mentioned like in some ways you're kind of serving as a speaking agent amongst other things for some of these clients that you're working with. So at what point, uh, are, are you as a pseudo speaking agent for some of these clients? Does it start to kind of creep in and like, I want to be up there. Like how'd that clown <laughs> get up there? Like they should put me up there. Like how did that evolution happen early on for you? Well, you know, it was, it was a bunch of little things. Right. And, and I, and, um, it, you know, I, I think it started when I, I saw kids that were sort of recruiting me to be an agent. They wanted to be an agent because think kids think that's a really, Kind of cool job, we all, right? We all so, watch Jerry Maguire. Yeah, so they're like meeting, you know, meeting with me, and I'm watching the way that they were, quote unquote, sort of recruiting me, if you will, or or calling on me for advice. And at the same time, I was recruiting athletes and coaches, and I was like, boy, these kids, I'm not sure they understand how to recruit and how to sell and how to connect. And I thought, man, but I want people to love their work and I want people to do what they feel like they're gifted at doing. And I want them, I mean, we work a lot of hours in our life. I want them to love it. So long story short, I started to write sort of a process down that I thought could help kids. Cause I, I thought I can't meet with all these kids that I'm trying, that I want to try to help. And, and uh, nor did my boss, by the way, want to pay me to meet with all these young kids. And so I, I wrote and wrote and wrote when my young daughter was taking naps and, and then, talk somebody into publishing it. Somebody looked at me and goes, Molly, like, you've got like 60,000 words here. You should publish this thing. And I'm like, what? My mom wrote my papers. You want me to write a paper? Like, you want me to write a book? So, um, so then I did, I got a publisher to publish the book and then universities started saying, Hey, will you come and talk about career and sports and your career to our sports administration department, sports management department, our sports teams, et cetera. And then um, after I had done a little bit of that, I thought, wow, this is really rewarding, really fulfilling. And I feel like I'm helping these young kids. This is cool. And then um, 
And then I started to see a common thread between peak performers. Um, like the, the, the way that Smoltz operated wasn't too dissimilar to the way Doc Rivers or Tom Izzo or Billy Donovan or Aaron Andrews. And I thought, man, they, they all, the, all these peak performers have something in common, regardless of what it is that they do. So then I wrote a book called The Business of Being the Best, and that was more really targeted toward business people, really in the spirit of, of, of gosh, I mean, th- these things that these athletes and coaches do are things that business people can lay over top of their worlds and it can help them. And then companies started saying, hey, will you come and talk? So, th- so that was, Grant, when I sort of found myself at a place where the phone was sort of ringing Hey, can you come and do our zero to three years of service advisors at Merrill Lynch? Can you come and do, you know, X, Y? And and then it just really evolved very organically from there until I found myself at a place where I needed to make a decision because I didn't feel like, I mean, obviously I, I really was feeling very fulfilled speaking. I felt like it was changing and impacting people's lives in a positive way. And, and then I sort of thought, do I want to go to my grave, you know, having negotiated a billion dollars in deals? Two billion, like what's the end game here relative to fulfillment and legacy? Mm-hmm. And that was when I really got clear. And with my husband and family support, you know, I stepped into to the space and probably Grant, when I left the agent business, I had 10 or 15 gigs on the books for not a lot of money. The math didn't make a lot of sense. But, you know, I always say the more you speak, the more you speak. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so... It was just all now, what was the like what was the timeline in this as far as like when you left the agency business, how long ago was that when you had you know 20, 10, 15 gigs at the time? Yeah, late twenty ten I stepped away and then I was speaking and I probably did, I don't know, maybe twenty, thirty gigs that year, you know, and was just easy easily negotiating my fee to to sort of do it. And then, you know, just and then it got sort of more and more busy and then I needed to hire somebody to help manage the incoming requests. And then, um, you know, every year we've sort of chipped, chipped away at it. And it's, you know, that was, I don't know, 10, 12 years later. And now we work with various bureaus and, and et cetera. You mentioned, um, you know, early on there like, that you got a lot of organic traffic and, and inquiries just primarily through the book. Was there anything that you were doing proactively going out or is it just kind of like I kind of just sit and wait for the phone to ring? Well, it, what was happening, honestly, was every keynote I was giving, there's people in the back of the room. So initially mm-hmm. for, for me, Grant, it was, it was a lot of financial institutions because they're fee-based, they're relationship-driven, it, kind of a similar business model in some regards. And I could connect to it because as an agent, I didn't manage money for our players, but I watched a lot of advisors pitch players. So that, that was able to, that was a powerful way to help, help people understand here's what works as an advisor mm-hmm. when you're pitching new business and here's what doesn't. I had found... But at the back of the room was all the various organizations that call on the advisors. At, you know, mm-hmm. you know, when you come to a conference, there's the sort of the event and then there's often the, there's the sort of the show space, right? The booths, et cetera. Those people would come into the main kind of keynotes, you know, and listen. And then it was just all word of mouth. And, and it's continued to be all word of mouth, Um which I'm super grateful for. And, and then I did some things, I think, Grant, that could help your listeners. I, I, I got an opportunity with the PGA Tour um, to do events in about 17 markets where they were bringing women together in various markets at PGA Tour events to expose them to the game of golf. And they would bring in like two or 300 executive women. And 
What that meant was the audience was filled with two or 300 people that work for two or 300 different companies in, Mm -hmm. you know, in different markets. And I feel just blessed to have gotten that because it created, again, sort of another funnel of various opportunities through, through referrals. So I think anytime you're doing keynotes where it's associations, it's people in the room from various companies, that's always a really helpful way to, to, and, and I just sort of fell into that, but it's a really helpful way to think about it because your, your, your tentacles are spreading, um, you know, more broadly because you've got a broader audience going back to hundreds of different organizations. You mentioned early on and even still today, a lot of the business comes from just kind of word of mouth. Someone sees you speak and, you know, they're uh, as we both know that you have no idea who's in the audience and someone who may be a direct uh, they're directly looking to hire someone or someone who a friend of a friend or someone they change jobs. And three years later, they're going to be like, hey, I saw you three years ago and I don't even you know, you don't even remember doing that gig. But those type of things build over time. Uh, you know, there, there's one side of it of just in terms of like just being really, really good on stage. And yes, that's a factor. But is there anything else that you were doing on stage intentionally or unintentionally that you felt like built some of that momentum? Because just because someone, some, someone sees you speak doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, I, I, we should hire her. Um, sometimes people, oddly enough, don't make the connection that, yes, I do this for other organizations and it's not just this one event in isolation. So is there anything that you do strategically from stage just to, to help kind of um, spark that for other potential gigs? You know, I'm a big, I, maybe then I, I, I might have, I think then back, I mean, that was 10 years ago, right? I think sometimes we would have um, a brochure or a form that people could would fill, like more to take notes, but on the yep. other side of it, was my website, our website, et cetera. So I think that was maybe how we did it then. Um, I don't sell from stage. I, I don't think that's a good idea. I know that a lot of people try to thread through different things, and I think that that's okay if you're very, very careful about it. But to me, when somebody's paying you to be up in front of, it's not to sell your other stuff. Right. And I remember early in my career, I asked a couple of speakers bureaus that we were that started to call and 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 request keynotes. I, I remember asking, you know, what what can we do better to support you and your clients? And and one of the things was don't come with a wagon of stuff behind you that you're selling. Companies yeah. don't like that. Um, and so I'm really pretty careful about that. And and I think, look, if 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 you deliver a great message and you make an impact on people, and they remember you. And maybe they change behavior from that. Um, I, I, they're going to be able to find you if if you yeah. if you uh, if you're good. So I, I think that's pretty important. I think you know being easy to work with is really important. You know, I, I, I get down to keynotes early. I want to I want to peek at my slides. I want to get mic'd up. I want to sit in the back of the room and get the energy from the room and learn. You know, what are they hearing before I go up? What are they going to hear after? I do a pre-call before every keynote because I, I want to get in the heads and the hearts of the people in the room. If, if I'm not in their heads and hearts, I don't know how I can connect. I want to know what are they worried about? What are they excited about? What's working for them right now? What's not working? What's happening in the industry? What's happening in the organization? The more that I can get in their heads and hearts, the more that I can thread through, uh, you know, whether it's words or, or align a story, for example, and pull the right stories for that audience that that will drive the behavior change that the organization is, in fact, hoping for. 
To that end, like how much customization are you doing for any given keynote? So if, again, if you're given 60, 70 keynotes a year, um, you know, there, there's some speakers who have the approach of like, this is the keynote. And if you see it, you know, speaking to financial advisors in Dallas and you see me speaking to medical professionals in Philadelphia, it's the exact same talk. Yeah. And some are massively customized. Some are going to say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I have this story that if I'm speaking to this type of audience, I'm probably using this, but I have a different story, same kind of point that I'm going to make out of it if I'm talking to this audience. Like how much customization? Yeah are you doing with the talk? I, I uh, you know, I do a pre-call before every event um, and I want to get inside of the, their language and I weave that all in. I have a database of probably 30 really strong stories that can drive home sort of a myriad of points. So um, every single one I would say is a little bit different. The story might be the same, but the application's different. Um, it may be a different story. Um, I have a few staple stories that I always tell because they really drive home. I tell this fun story about moving to Atlanta on free rent. I mean, I'll be at the airport and somebody will go, wait, are you that lady that got free rent for nine years? And I'm like, yeah, they're like, dude, that story was so cool. So I, um, you know, there's a few that I pretty much always tell. Um, and then, and then everything else is kind of up for grabs based on what, what, what we're driving, what, what we're driving for relative to the change. I mean, to me, they're paying you. Yeah. They, you, they want to feel good. They want to be inspired. They want to learn. But at the end of the day, they, they're paying you because at some level, hopefully if they're spending all this money to bring all these people together, they, they want to change behavior, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they want to connect them with one another, all the things that happen at these events, but at some level, I believe they want to, they want to help them up their game a little bit. They want to help them just leave a little bit better than than the person that got there. Yeah. And so in an hour, you know, how much change can you make? I mean, I would argue that people leave with two or three nuggets, right? That they then go, you know, I'm going to, that, that resonated with me. I'm going to go be more present. I'm going to, I'm going to navigate change and embrace it a, a little bit differently. And here's how I'm going to shift my mindset and recover more quickly or, you know, what, whatever the circumstance might be to me, that's really important. So there's some speakers like like yourself who come um, with kind of a fascinating background. You know, you have a unique background, having been a sports agent for a long time, having been a female in that space that I you know, would assume is predominantly male uh, sure. oriented. Uh, and so you probably have a lot of amazing stories. And so whenever you are uh, coming on stage, how do you find that right balance of, I want to provide content, but I also know like, all right, people are probably going to want to know what's it like to negotiate a hundred million dollar contract. Sure. You know? And so the same thing that's true with when, you know, some of those athletes that you used to represent, um, you know, and we're both friends with several people who, uh, in the industry who bureaus who book, you know, big, big names. And so if they bring in, uh, Peyton Manning, they're not, you know, necessarily bringing in Peyton Manning to, you know, what are your right. three best corporate leadership tips? They're like, right. tell us some cool stories, you know, yeah, totally. um, cause you're Peyton Manning. So how do you kind of find that right balance of, of stories and the engagement entertainment side of it, but also like, no, here's some like actually meat on the bone. Well, to me, that's what they're paying for is the meat on the bone, right? Like with, with a yeah. non-celebrity. So I think it's important that, that you spend you know, plenty of time landing the plane, if you will, relative to the application to the, to the audience. Um, 
you know, I, I think um, it's important to self-deprecate. I think humor's a big deal. My, you know, people laugh every five, six minutes inside of a keynote that I deliver. And I think that's really important. I mean, I think that's really important. I think there's a really fine line between the amount of personal stories you tell and the amount of stories that you tell about, you know, an athlete or a coach that you work with or whatever it might be. Um, I, I think you've got a very quickly, one of my, one, one of my buddies says this, you know, you physically, you know, you're above people when you speak, right. You're on a stage, mm-hmm. you are being introduced with all these accolades because that's why you're speaking. So I think very quickly, what is incredibly important is to get down. Like I self-deprecate immediately with a, some, with a story that I tell, because I think you've got to get down so that they feel connected to you because you're literally physically, they've just heard all these things. You know, they've seen maybe you're in the brochure, you're in the bio, you're in the agenda. I mean, you got to get down to, to them so that you can connect, which is obviously who I am anyway. But I think that they don't know that. And, and I think as a speaker, you can't underestimate, you know, Grant, one of the things I always love, you know, talk about is that if you're taking, when you really think about it, an organization is paying you and putting you in front of arguably some of the very most important people in their world. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. And they don't know you. Like they're watching videos and they're doing, but they don't know you. So to me, you want to, you want to put them at ease relative to the confidence and comfort they can have in the way that you're going to show up, the consistency by which you show up the intentionality, the commitment, the preparation. Um, you know, I take every single event and crud- I've probably given a thousand keynotes over the last 10 years. I take it very seriously because it's a very important moment for the organization. I want to touch on humor. Well, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is like you use a lot of humor. Humor is a great, great, great differentiating factor as a speaker. Most speakers are assumed to be blah and boring and dull. Um, just a little bit of humor can go a long, long way. It can also be a, you know, a thing that a lot of speakers are intimidated by because they're like, I'm not a comedian and I don't sure. know what's funny and I'm not sure how to, you know, uh, I told a uh, an unintentional joke and some people laughed and like, I, you know, cause when you're, when, especially when you're making a joke, you're, you're, you're you're kind of making an educated guess. I think this is funny. I think this will resonate, but you yeah. don't know until you're getting in front of a live audience. And as yeah. you know, as you know, like you've told the same story to a hundred different audiences and you've got a hundred different reactions. So for you, when you're kind of going like, I'd like to incorporate more humor, or I think this is funny. How do you go about approaching that? Thinking about that? How do I ensure this is going to work and not be a dud? Sure. How do you incorporate humor if you're unsure of your own ability to use humor? Yeah. I, I mean, I would say I, I never really, ever sort of wrote down humor, right, per se, and got that intentional. But, um, you know, number one, you want to make sure, I mean, because we aren't a comedian, right? So those guys can maybe tote that line of being quote unquote offensive, for example, or whatever it might be. But, you know, I don't, obviously, I don't think that's appropriate in any way. But, um, you know, I think you, 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 you just like, you test it. I mean, you just you and I and I think the more real you are, um, you know, I, I tell a funny story about and, and it just sort of happened in the moment on 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 various stages where you just kind of go, wait, this is kind of this kind of fits. So I think what people want is us to show up as ourselves. And so mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing that I would encourage speakers to do is don't try to be like 
Martin Luther King or don't try to be like, I mean, all of them are, they're incredible speakers, but be you and find that sort of line of humor. For example, if that's something um, that feels fitting for you, that's authentic to you. I mean, I tell a funny story about Smoltz getting a hyperbaric chamber and tell me how excited he was about his hyperbaric chamber. And, but I remember once on stage, just being like, telling the story and it was the truth, which John was so excited about it. And I remember I had said this to Smoltzy when he was up in the office, I was like, dude, John, like, I'm glad you love your hyperbaric chamber. And I'm glad that you, you know, sleep in it before you pitch. Cause he was telling me now I sleep in it. Like I sleep in it a lot. Like I feel so good. And I was like, John, it's great. And I said, but John, like you're married. <laughs> so, you know, and it's like, so it's just like, and it's just, that's just real. Like that was yeah. what happened. And I was like, John. And then I was like, and then you got a divorce. And I was like, bro, I warned you. So I think you, you've just kind of got to be sort of find that way for you that feels natural. And is really a part of the story in, in a way that's real and that's relatable. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the best comedians, not that this is about being a comedian, but I think some of the best ones, it's, it's so relatable. Yeah. Driving through the yeah. McDonald's drive through and whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's just stuff that everybody deals with. Right. Uh, I want to go back to one thing you touched on. It sounded like, uh, especially early on, that you were doing a lot of writing and it kind of led to this initial book that led to some organic uh, gigs and then doing another book. And so uh, can you speak to a little bit of like how books have impacted your speaking? Because there are certainly different schools of thought of speakers that believe like there's speakers that are very successful who've never done a book and speakers who have done a book and that kind of led them into speaking and, you know, books and speaking go very well hand in hand, but do you feel like you need a book in order to be a speaker? Do you feel like uh, speakers have to have a book and what are, what's kind of your philosophy on that? Yeah. I mean, I've never really thought deeply about that, but what I would say is I don't know, and maybe you do, I don't know Grant of a non-celebrity without a book that's, that's making a living speaking. No. I don't know if you do, but I don't really, I can't really think of someone who is a non-celebrity that doesn't have a book. I think it is a gigantic business card for whatever reason. When you write a book, people think you've got a little bit more to say and you have something yeah. to say. Now, look, I mean, when I started writing books, the barrier was harder. It was, you went, you had to go through a publisher. Now it's, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty it's pretty easy. It's easier to write a book relative to you don't have to have a publisher. You don't have to have a literary agent. You can utilize these various resources, which is awesome. And obviously you make a way bigger split <laughs> when you self-publish. But I would argue that if you're not a celebrity, um, that a book is a really big help personally. Yeah. Now, I've asked bureaus, does it matter if you're a New York Times bestseller, for example, if relative to fees – and I've gotten different answers, but I don't know that there's a direct correlation. I don't think a bureau would say if you're a New York Times bestseller, then you're over 100 grand. Or if you're not, you're not. I don't think that they would correlate that. But I do think there's other things that come with being on a bestseller list um, yeah. that are tangential. To, to that end, um, you don't have to give any numbers or anything, but I'd be curious, like, how have you thought about as your as the business has grown over the years, your speaking fee has certainly increased. What have been some of those thresholds where it felt like it like how have you kind of thought about when it makes sense to raise your fees? It's always easier to go up. It's hard to go back. Sure. Uh, and so how have you kind of navigated fee changes over your career? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I feel fortunate that we have some great relationships with bureaus. And I think 
you know, they, they've given us a lot of feedback relative to that, you know, kind of what, what, you know, I mean, there's this weird gap between 50 and 80,000, you know, over a hundred, there's this, there's, you know, we've talked to them about travel fees, what's standard, what's easy. So, you know, for me, it's a little bit about leaning into some of the experts and saying, when, when you're including us in a pitch, for example, who are we beside, you know, who are we beside and what are their fees? And, and, you know, leaning into them for feedback and support. And, and then I think the other component of it is just like I have a buddy of mine who's a speaker and he, he just he wants to do 12 a year, one a month. And he's just like, I don't I, here's how much I'll take a day to go do it. And if people want to pay me, cool. If they don't, cool. Um, so I think it just if you're if your primary source of income is speaking, I think you've got to be particularly intentional about how you navigate your fee. If you have another source of income and, and it, it'd be great if you got a gig, but you don't need it and you want to be on the very top end of maybe a fee structure based on sort of your your position in the market, if you will, then I think you, you can have a little fun with it and see what happens. But to your yeah. point, it is very hard to rewind the tape. I mean, I, I've yeah. never I've never tried to do that, um, but I would imagine that would be difficult. Well, it's also important to note that like there, there's so much just laws of supply and demand that go into this. You know, if you say, "Hey, I'm just going to do 12 gigs a year, and here's my fee, take it or leave it." Well, you better have the demand to back that up. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you're like, "Wow, I'm, that's shocking. I'm not getting you know any yeah. gigs at this fee level." Um, yeah. So it's um, it's important to note. Uh, I want to shift gears before we wrap up here. Uh, I want to talk about being a female speaker. Uh, I'm yeah. married to my high school sweetheart. We got three daughters. I live in a house full of women, uh, and so that's I'm sure very very. It's the best. I love it. Um, and so, uh, being a female speaker is probably similar to, you know, being a, a female sports agent. There's, there's not a ton of them, but the ones that are out there are really, really, really good. So what advice would you give to maybe up and coming female speakers who are just like, boy, I'd love to be at, you know, Molly's status uh, as a speaker, but it feels like this is such a, a male dominated industry, or I don't know how to you know differentiate myself or yeah. like, what would you say to those speakers? Well, I would say we, we do need more women out there and, and, um, you know, we, we need strong women that are in front of other women and, and men, but, but because it helps inspire some of these, these younger women to, to, I mean, one of the number one reasons women are coming out of the workforce and hitting a jack is because they don't see other women doing what they want to do. So Mm. I think, um, for strong women to be in the front of the room and tell their story, we need more of that for sure. Um, my, my advice would be if it's something that you want to do, you know, identify what are you uniquely positioned to talk about? I mean, what is the, I think one of the biggest mistakes sometimes people make is they come out of the gates with a website with like five topics. And, 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 and I did that and, you know, I could talk about that to me, it's sort of, what is the one thing that you are super uniquely positioned to talk about and then go, go hard in that direction. And, and put a stake in the ground, stand for that and be that person that when people think about leadership, culture, uh, change, pick your, that they think about you. And yeah. I think that, that that's what, you know, my advice to, to young women would be, is what, if, what is that one thing that, that only you can, can really speak to in a way that, that, that is authentic to you? And then put a stake in the, the ground and go there. And I, and I think the other thing that's important to remember is it takes, you know, I'm super impatient, Grant, like, but, you, you know, to me, it, you have to recognize that it takes time for things to percolate in, in the speaking space. That's why I always say the more you speak, the more you speak. So just 
get reps. I mean, just go do and go get in the front of the room and just keep iterating and iterating. I think about Grant, my first keynote that I ever gave when I flew to San Diego and I stood behind a podium and I did the 10 tips for peak performance. I mean, it was so bad, I'm sure. And, you know, now, I mean, I I would never dream to stand behind a podium. I mean, that was the last time I did it. You know, the whole thing's different now. So, you know, the more you do it, the, the more comfortable you get, you know, and, and be gentle on yourself along the way and and be who you authentically are as as a woman right. um, on stage and and, you know, and go for it. But and to, and, and recognize that. It, it's like, I think if you called on an organization and said, hey, I'm a speaker, I, I would love to speak. You're, like, you're probably going to get crickets. Right. So, um, you know, to me, it's a timing issue. It's staying in front of them. It's staying relevant. Um, it, it's staying in their kind of heads and hearts as they begin to navigate moments where they need speakers. And then they can consider you as somebody in that pool. Do you remember uh, that very first gig you did in San Diego? Do you remember what they paid you for that? Or did you get paid? Yeah, I think so. I think, well, that, I mean, that was after lots of free. I want to say I was at like 10 or 15,000 a keynote, maybe 20. Okay. At the time. Right. Out, of the, out of the gate. Well, I done, um, it was maybe 10, 15. It was probably 10 or 15. Here, here's what happened, Grant. And I'll tell you this, sir. I was, I gave a keynote. I ran over at lunch when I was an agent to a little building. Did I tell you this story when we were together? I, no, I don't think so. Well, this might, I, I mean, to me, this is just about your helping your listeners, but I ran over at lunchtime to give a keynote and to a small group in this little place at this convention center across the street from my office. And this lady came up to me after the keynote who has become a mentor and a dear friend still. And she said, you need to do this. And I said, what do you, what do you, what do you mean do this? Like, I got like, I got agents, I got athletes. I got, she goes, no, you, you really, you should do more of this. You're, you know, you, I think this is what you need to do. And I was like, well, what do you mean? How? And she goes, when can you go to lunch? I mean, literally. And so we go to lunch and she's like, you need to get a website. You need to get some videos up and you, and you need to quote a fee. And I was like, I book my athletes for keynotes. Like, what are you talking? You know, and she goes, no, you can get 10. And I'm like, 10? No way. And she goes, 100%. And I was like, there's no way. And she goes, 100%. So literally, like we did, we started, we started there and then it's, you know, evolved. So. That's amazing. Uh, well, Molly, you're certainly uh, an inspiration for uh, speakers at all different ages and stages uh, of their career and wherever they're, they're at. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, uh, where can we go? I know that you have a, a massive podcast. Uh, also, you, you've referenced a couple of books there. So yeah. witness to all things uh, Molly Fletcher. Yeah, my podcast, Game Changers with Molly Fletcher, is super fun like you. It's just an honor to, to interview incredible fun people. Not that not I'm not that person. I'm just saying it's fun to talk to people and share those conversations. Um, so my podcast and then mollyfletcher.com. Awesome. Molly, thanks for the time. We appreciate it. Super fun, Grant. Good to see you. Hi, friend. Are you ready to get serious about taking your speaking business to the next level? Maybe you are someone who is looking for ways to book more paid gigs, or maybe you're trying to figure out all the different things that go into building a successful speaking business. Or perhaps you are an experienced speaker who wants to scale your speaking business to multiple six figures. And so if that's you, I would encourage you to visit thespeakerlab.com slash apply. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash apply. I want you to book a free, no obligation call with our team. And if you're not quite ready, 
ready to take that leap, I don't want you to hesitate in checking out all the free resources that we have available to you on our website, including this podcast. So head over to thespeakerlab.com. Again, thespeakerlab.com. Find hundreds of blog posts, how-to guides, podcast episodes, email scripts, proposal templates, and so much more. Finally, I got a big favor. I would love for you to leave us a rating or review for this podcast. We read every single one, and it also helps other speakers find valuable free resources that they can use to build their own speaking careers. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.